Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. Today's episode is with Daniel Leff, co-founder of Waverly Capital, a leader in media-centered investing. Over the years, Daniel has invested in some amazing companies, including Roku, Headspace, The Athletic, and Fubo TV. But having known Daniel for nearly 10 years, what I've always found most impressive about him is he's built a career in being very comfortable with thinking differently, even if it goes against mainstream consensus. We had a great discussion where we talked about the media tech space, the power of strategic LPs, and his unique thoughts on portfolio building. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Adura Advisors, who I've worked with closely for over a decade and is home to hundreds of private equity and venture fund managers. As someone that's personally very discriminated when it comes to service quality, I found Adura to be a firm that pairs best of breed service with the type of technology demanded by today's fund managers and LPs. Through their internally developed software platform, FundPanel.io, fund managers and LPs can easily manage reporting, capital calls, and performance tracking. Regardless of whether you're an emerging manager just starting out, or you're a seasoned firm looking to supplement an internal team, Adura's back office solution rises to the challenge of supporting your firm's specific needs. Listeners of Venture Unlocked receive the first quarter management company services free with promo code UNLOCKED. To redeem, email dev at aduraadvisors.com. That's D-E-V at A-D-U-R-O-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. Daniel, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Samara. I really appreciate it. So let's go to the beginning of when you started Luminary back in 2013. You had just left Globespan after, I think, five years. What inspired the start of Luminari and, and what did you see as the vision and the opportunity of the firm? There were a handful of things. You know, first, av- after having worked in venture capital at that point in time for 13 years and for a handful of different venture firms, I believed that I was ready to build a new firm. Second, I saw several dynamics in the venture ecosystem as well as the media sector that led me to believe that it was the right time to launch a new investment platform. And some of those dynamics uh, included the following. So the venture capital industry was evolving and was becoming more segmented and stratified with focused funds being established that were beginning to outperform their industry peers, in my opinion. And these included geographic focused funds in India, China, and other geos. They included stage-focused funds, such as seed-stage firms, late-stage growth funds, etc. They also included sector-focused funds, such as consumer and SaaS and retail, enterprise, cloud, etc. From my viewpoint, there was an opportunity to, in a very unique fashion, build a new investment platform. And if one believed they had an edge and differentiated advantage, you could build a new firm and coexist in the venture ecosystem and in fact, excel in more of a co-opetition manner. So that is at times you would be competing with uh, very large and established platforms, but at other times, uh, especially in terms of sharing deal flow and and investment syndication and things like that, um, you would be partnering with other established firms. So that was the first dynamic that I was seeing overall. The second 
um, was a result of an investment I had made very early in the company's evolution, a company called Roku. And from my position on the board of directors there, I had the great fortune to sit in what I would call a century position and see the beginning of yet another multi-decade transformation in what is notionally about a trillion dollar plus global media landscape. And when I looked around the venture capital ecosystem at, at Sand Hill Road's relationship to Hollywood, as well as the amount of uh, venture capital dollars that were being invested annually in the media sector, less than 5% roughly of total dollars deployed annually in, in venture capital were deployed in the media sector, I thought to myself, wow, there may just be a chance to build a new firm. And as I said before, to do it in a truly unique fashion. Speaking about that time period when you launched, and I do agree at, at the time, we were still in the early days of this institutional seed landscape. However, we had gone from just generalist funds to sector focused funds. And one of the, the items that I always talk to managers about, and I still hear today, is when you're sector focused, when you're out there raising, sometimes you run into some level of consternation from the LPs on is it too narrow? Is it too broad in nature? Um, and the narrow part comes up quite often. You're focusing on media, which, you know, from my understanding, a lot of folks, at least back then, didn't really understand what that meant. And can you actually build a, a lasting firm? Tell us a little bit about how you went out and raised and how did you navigate some of the challenges that you might have had from a fundraising standpoint, given that it was sector focus and it was in an industry that perhaps was not well understood by you know potential investors. That was an issue that was at the forefront of my mind. And in part, the way I addressed that candidly was spending very little time with traditional and institutional-based capital allocators in the venture ecosystem. I didn't feel that they would fully understand, quite frankly, and appreciate how novel this opportunity was to go and invest in disruption in a trillion-dollar-plus market opportunity in media. And as I had said before, historically, Sand Hill Road had had, as best could be described, a fractious relationship with Hollywood. And then I thought about what could be one of several key differentiators for the firm and candidly advantages for us. And that is, or that was to have an LP base that was very strategic in nature that ended up including a number of current and former C-level executives uh, in the media sector and board members of the world's largest companies in media. You know, I, I also thought about, uh, other companies that have been built historically in Silicon Valley, both traditional operating companies as well as venture firms. And when you have a contrarian idea, you need believers. What did Bill Gates need in the earliest days of Microsoft? What did Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce and Andy Grove need in the earliest days of Intel? Right? What did Larry and Sergey need in the earliest days of, of Google? Or in the more present times, what did Anthony Wood need in the earliest days of Roku or Daniel Eck in the earliest days of Spotify? They all had extreme conviction in a non-consensus or, con or, or a contrarian worldview, and they needed a base level of believers. So the way I solved um, some of the fundraising challenges is I went around and spent time with a number of current and former senior media executives that were 
in seats operationally trying to evolve in some cases uh you know the businesses that comprised 100 billion dollar plus market cap companies and they understood that change was coming in the media sector and that their businesses were going to be disrupted and we presented an opportunity for those individuals uh, not only to invest in the fund and be individual LPs, but to partner with us too in, in, in many ways. So while I did confront a lot of skepticism during the fundraising process, uh, I maintained my extreme conviction and belief in what I was certain was a very unique investment opportunity that others just weren't spending time on. I like the notion of true believers and people that really understand something, even if it's not necessarily well understood by mainstream, in this case, investors. The plan to go after these non-traditional type of investors, i.e. not the institutionals, was that determined prior to the fundraise in your early pre-fund discussions? Or was that something that you had to pivot to at some period during the fundraise after you found out that institutionals weren't just not going to be the greatest fits for the, uh, the initial fund? Before I went out and raised even the first dollar, I had designed on a piece of paper, in effect, what the unique elements of the firm would be. And one of those elements was going to be a very strategic LP base. And the reason for that is at the time, there were several of my close friends that were in the venture capital business that were very successful GPs at established firms that were leaving their prior platforms also to start new funds. Um, and some of them had an idea of partnering with, let's say, two other very well-respected GPs and doing a generalist TMT fund. And my belief was the ability to be successful doing that was very low versus establishing a firm that had several unique elements and more specifically an edge. And I thought long and hard about what is my edge? What is my differentiated and defensible advantage as a venture manager? And how, if I didn't have all the elements of an edge, how would I build those elements into the firm to ensure long-term success? Well, I did believe I had an edge and I'm glad to talk about that. But one of the elements to further ensure the execution of that edge was to have a strategic LP base of very knowledgeable and successful media executives that could be very involved in the firm's operations from a, from a range of, of functional roles. It was my belief and my design that I should have uh, an LP base, at least initially, that, that should consist of these types of individuals. I think that makes a ton of sense, especially given your, your focus. One, one conversation that I, I remember having with a manager that had a deck with a ton of advisors and, and strategic LPs was around the question of how do you activate these people consistently? Oftentimes, these people that you bring on as LPs or advisors are really busy people, hard to get any time on their calendars. How did you think about that from your own planning standpoint on you get these people in, but how do you actually programmatically allow them to add value in the ways that are necessary to help you, you know, win deals? It's quite difficult to do it prescriptively or programmatically 
versus ad hoc initially. And then over time, some degree of systemization applied. So my thought was first, obviously, let's raise the fund. Let's present an opportunity for these media executives to have a chance to be involved with the firm, to meet talented CEOs and founders of new co's that, that candidly would be disruptive, you know, in effect to the large media companies at which these individuals were executives and, and operating. And let them know a priori that we would call on them from time to time for a range of, you know, let's call it temporal functional roles. So, for example, um, if there was a particularly technology-intensive business that we were funding in the media sector, and, and we had committed to invest all throughout the value chain, not just direct-to-consumer content-related businesses or subscription businesses, but at times we would invest in um, some hardware businesses and some cloud software businesses. We would, we would ask these individuals to potentially apply some resources from their corporation in helping us conduct technical due diligence should we need that. Another way in which we activated them was in meeting with CEOs and founders and listening to the pitch and giving us their perspectives as part of a broader due diligence process, giving us perspectives on, candidly, the fundamental idea uh, and the product market fit of what this particular entrepreneur and or CEO was proposing. Another way in which we've uh, activated them over time is as advisors to our founders and CEOs. Uh, yet another way happened to be, quite frankly, as you may imagine, commercial business partnerships between our startups and their large organizations or strategic investment from their large corporations into various of our startups. So there are a multitude of ways in which we, we engage RLPs um, and not all at the same time and not all in any one situation because it's situational in, in nature. But um, we've been very fortunate that over the last eight years, we've got a very supportive and knowledgeable LP base. We spend time with our LPs on a regular basis. Uh, of course, not every LP every single week, and we involve them in what we're doing. And it's been a great partnering and a great two-way dialogue on, on a regular basis. Yeah, and, and I know it's been a big part of the additional value add and competitive edge you have within the uh, the media space. And it's a natural segue to moving to 2017 when you partnered with Edgar Bronfham Jr. to create Waverly or rebrand in some ways Luminari to Waverly. Edgar, um, obviously, long history in media, was the CEO of Warner Music Group, but didn't have that traditional venture training and was somebody that lived 3,000 miles away. Tell us a little bit about what went into that decision to bring Edgar on or partner with Edgar, rebrand the firm, and go a direction that in some ways is a little bit unconventional. If I go back to some of the differentiating elements of the firm when I first uh, established it in 2013, the fund was going to be exclusively focused on media, but very broadly within the media ecosystem. The fund was going to be 
stage agnostic, even though our first fund was a, was a small fund. We were going to have this very unique and strategic LP base, as I had mentioned. We also wanted to provide our entrepreneurs and CEOs with unparalleled access where they needed it in the media sector, including at CEO and board member level at some of the world's largest media companies. And we also wanted to ensure in our favor, incredible information asymmetry in the media sector. And when I thought about those elements and bringing on the first partner of the firm, I thought to myself, well, Edgar and I have been working together for several years already. He was an LP in the first fund. He was a a senior advisor and special limited partner. He's a person I had built not only a personal relationship and friendship with over time, but a professional relationship. And he was involved more so in the background with the operations of Luminari, but we worked very closely together on a number of investment opportunities and uh, other elements of, of building the firm. And I had a decision to make about, do I want to bring into the firm an individual who's a very experienced Silicon Valley-based type investor? Because there were many of those whom I was close to and, and who wanted to join the firm, but I didn't feel like it was a great compliment to me and what the firm needed at that time. And I felt Edgar was, given his background in operating a number of, of large companies. He was the CEO of, of Seagram. He also was the, the CEO of Universal Studios, one of the largest um, movie studios. And as you mentioned, he was the CEO of Warner Music. So he had great operational capabilities and perspective in the media sector. But something that's also not well known about Edgar is he has been involved in startups for decades, as it turns out. People don't know that Edgar um, was the co-founder uh, of Fandango, which ultimately became you know, a leading um, online movie ticket service. He also had another venture platform called Accretive, where he and a partner were founding, investing in, and helping build uh, startup companies in different segments, not in media, but in um, digital health. There's a company that he was involved in from the beginning called Accolade which ultimately uh, Andreessen Horowitz became an investor in, and it went public last year and and performed very well. He's also been a personal uh, investor in startups for for many decades. So his startup investing chops, while not well publicized, is something I really appreciated also about him. But that's not the main reason why I chose him to be be my partner and and co-founder when we rebranded the firm. Um, He had the background I mentioned, and also a set of perspectives and frameworks for investing that I felt were complementary to my own. And also, I uh, this may sound trite, but Edgar and I really like each other. We really respect each other. I had worked for three pro- three other venture firms in my career, you know, and I can't say that was that was true across the board in the partnerships of of all those firms. And as you know partnerships grow, uh, certain dynamics can, can take hold, which aren't always positive. But Edgar and I have Im- immense respect and trust for each other. We really like each other. And he compliments me very well. And for, for media investment and sector focus for our firm, I couldn't think of anybody 
um, better. And it's been a great decision and we've worked together very effectively. That's wonderful. And it, it, it certainly sounds like it was brand strategy and uh, cultural aligned. And, you know, that is very difficult. And I didn't realize that Edgar had so much of a background in investing and working with startups. So it completely makes sense. And I, I want to now shift to the investing side. I look at your portfolio and there's massive, massive winners in there with, you know, companies like Matterport and Roku and Headspace, The Athletic, Fubo. But a lot of these companies, as we alluded to earlier, aren't companies that are necessarily well understood by traditional Silicon Valley investors. And I think Roku had a lot of trouble actually raising capital. I think ultimately, from a larger institutional standpoint, Menlo and Menlo Ventures was the first that became a believer of them. But as you think about investing, you're investing often at the early stages. How do you navigate the risk that some of these companies may take some time to get access to that downstream capital that companies in other sectors might have an easier time getting? To, how does that impact and shape your, your investing model? We have a focus in the media sector. It's still unclear to us why most venture investors believe disruption is capable in every other sector than media. It's, it's hard. It, there are, obviously, there are a handful of, of firms that also uh, invest in media that we've syndicated um, deals with that, that also believe in the potential for disruption in media. But for the most part, it's surprising that um, most firms don't believe that's possible, yet they believe it's possible for a tiny little uh, fledgling enterprise to disrupt Microsoft or SAP or uh, IBM or what have you in, in, you know, let's say cloud or SaaS. It's, you know, believed that a tiny little company can come and disrupt the entire uh, global hotel industry. And, you know, today Airbnb is in market cap is worth more than the aggregate of most facilities based global hotel chains. You know, people in the venture business believe that a tiny little company can disrupt the global transportation and logistics industry. And that company is called Uber. It's, it's just, it's still remarkable to me. And I think part of it goes back to this fractious relationship that Sand Hill Road has with Hollywood, a whole slew of misunderstandings of how one can spot potential disruption in the media sector and how you build these companies. But certainly capital access is a challenge, but we've never heard that really as a reason for most venture investors to stay away from media investing. So in any case, it's our belief that if we find compelling investment opportunities, what we call category-defining media companies, that over time, capital finds a way to be deployed in its highest and best use and opportunity for, for yield or return. But there's no doubt that a multitude of our companies have struggled to raise capital over time. But was Airbnb's path to success linear? Didn't they have trouble just in the last years raising a large round? Uh, Spotify is a greater than $50 billion market cap company, and it had trouble raising capital multiple rounds. 
Roku today is a $53 billion market cap company. And yes, it had trouble over time um, accessing capital. And uh, our company Fubo TV, which uh, trades publicly, and both Edgar and I are on the board in full disclosure, is you know roughly a $5 billion market cap company today. And we were a seed investor, and we invested in every single round of investment for that company, including we invested in the IPO. Yes, it had trouble at various points in time accessing capital. But our, our belief and conviction in the opportunity and the potential to execute and build a category-defining company never wavered. And so we worked very hard to ensure that these companies had capital access over time. And of course, we weren't the only ones, but uh, we certainly worked as hard uh, as anyone else that was involved. And what we also found is over time, while some of our investment ideas and, and asset selection, so to speak, um, was certainly unpopular, and other investors would look askance upon those investments, over time, the rest of the world came to understand those companies and then you know, offer, offer uh, investment capital. I think The Athletic is another interesting example, which has now built the world's number one sports news um, subscription business. We've invested in every round starting in the seed. And the seed, the Series A and the Series B, and maybe even the Series C, uh, did not get a lot of attention from traditional Silicon Valley or Sand Hill-based firms. And then, um, you know, over time, Peter Thiel and Founders Fund came to understand the business and became a very large investor in the company. And at that period of time, they competed with other, uh, you know, tier one established venture platforms, you know, to lead those, those rounds of capital. They came to understand the merits of that, of that business. Part of the way we've solved it is being very creative about potential capital sources, including strategics, uh, media strategics, one unique element of our portfolio companies. There are very few that don't have material investment from at least one media strategic. And in some cases, like Roku or Fubo or others, there were five plus media strategics that were investors over time. It's a great point, and uh, I appreciate you actually giving us that that information. Didn't realize that there was such a wide base of type of financial partners that were active in, you know, early stage investing, especially um, you know post seed. Is I th- thought about what you were saying. You know, part of me was jumping to, I guess, the conclusion that maybe a model like yours and investing in the type of companies you are would have to reserve more capital to protect against situations where companies hadn't reached the level of velocity to attract traditional venture follow-on investors. But it really sounds like there's much more out there, and you've spent a lot of time fostering those relationships with not only the venture investors, but the, uh, the non-traditional strategic investors. At this point in time, we've been very fortunate to have found, invested in, and helped build several category-defining companies within the media sector. And I think those proof points and candidly points on the board have engendered confidence in us by different parts of the financial services ecosystem. So at times when we could not get traditional venture platforms 
to invest in our portfolio companies, we have gotten various high net worth individuals that are strategic in nature. They may be individuals that are CEOs of $250 billion market cap companies. They include individuals who have built and run very large and respected TMT-focused public market funds or hedge funds. They have been capital sources that, that candidly have come into the market in the last five to 10 years and become very established. So private, for example, private pools of capital that um, a number of hedge fund platforms have established and now have become very well-respected uh, and in size investors in mid and late stage uh, growth companies. So there are many ways in which we've solved the capital access problem. So we don't let that deter us if we believe we have found what we think can become a category defining media company. We will make an investment. And as you know, these investments, not in our sector or almost any other sector, um, have a sole investor uh, at any one point in time. They're typically syndicated amongst a, a number of players or investors. Even if it's a total of a $2 million seed round, it typically has maybe a seed firm, maybe a seed-focused fund component of a very large established venture platform, certainly various strategic angels form, you know, and those entities and individuals form a syndicate. And so we've been fortunate to have built, you know, great relationships over time in the financial services ecosystem that have ameliorated some of those capital access concerns. There's another thing I want to revisit a, a little deeper, and that is this concept of conviction-based investing. It's something that gets bandied around quite often in VC, but the actual exercise of investing in companies that are not popular, where you're consistently investing against the crowd and truly being contrarian, is something that's really hard to do for a number of different reasons. And you've always been somebody that has struck me as being really comfortable with those things. Tell us a little bit about your mental model on how you become so comfortable with high conviction-based investing when in many of those cases, it is completely against what other people may think about a particular company. Part of it comes from the experience I had at several other venture firms prior to starting Luminari. Um, I started my career at Redpoint Ventures in 1999 at the inception of, of their fund. I also worked for a firm called Seven Rosen Funds, which, which you will know well, but many people won't if you haven't been following the venture business for more than 10 years. Seven Rosen Funds for a couple of decades was one of the, certainly a top decile firm from fund one through maybe fund five, fund six, um, was founded by Ben Rosen and LJ7. Ben was the first investor in Compaq Computer and, and chairman of Compaq all the way through its sale to, um, to Hewlett Packard. Um, of course, as you know, I was at Globespan for, for a little over five years, and I had the great fortune to have sat around some really interesting firms and how those partners made investment decisions. And candidly, I took away uh, a lot of lessons, both good and bad. One of those lessons was, if I believe something can be a compelling event investment, 
and I have done my research on the space and I have done my diligence on that particular company. Candidly is to have belief and conviction in my own investment decisions. I felt I was ready to make my own investment decisions. And so for the first five years of this firm, I was the investment committee and I felt very comfortable with that. It doesn't mean I wasn't going to make poor decisions at times or bad investment selection um, because I have, and I will continue to do that, I'm sure for the rest of my career, right? But fortunately, we've made some, some very good investment decisions. Our win-loss ratio is disproportionately high just by company number. Our dollar aggregate win-loss ratio is greatly disproportionately high. Uh, I don't know how long that can continue. So when we win, thankfully, we've tended to win big. And when we've lost, thankfully, we've tended to lose very small. So I do have belief in my own investment selection. I'm not infallible. And like I said, I want to be clear, I've made poor investment decisions and I will make additional poor investment decisions. But if we find a company that we believe is the right product market fit at the right time, paired with the right founders and or management, and we believe it can become a category defining company, we will back it. And we have conviction. We will solve capital access. Candidly, and there are other we think bigger problems than capital access for such companies. For us, it starts with product market fit. There's been this long debate in the venture business. You know, do you bet the jockey or the horse, et cetera? And it is my firm belief you cannot take an A plus founder and or CEO um, and pair that with an A plus market, but a mediocre product market fit and build a successful company. You can land such a company successfully at some nominal exit potentially. But for us, it starts with product market fit. And we believe based on our relationships in the media sector, based on the information flow we are in on a daily basis, based on our information asymmetry, again, only in the media sector, we believe that our data set and information set is superior. And we hope over time, on average, to make high quality investment decisions, full well knowing we will make some poor investment decisions over time as well. Um, and we don't need the imprimatur of another firm or the opinion of another individual outside of our firm to tell us we're, that such an investment is a good one or a bad one. We solicit inputs all the time and we want those inputs. Edgar and I are the investment committee for, for fun too. And I was uh, very glad and welcome that he, uh, I felt welcoming that he agreed to be my partner and to sit on that investment committee. So every investment decision going forward since he joined the firm formally is his and mine together. I appreciate you going through that. I, I, there's so many interesting nuggets and takeaways that I think could inform a lot of people listening to this. And I want to shift to the final segment of our show, which is our heat check round. And you've covered some of the questions I'm about to ask, but I, I want to ask you specifically three questions. The first being, what advice would you give a newer manager starting up? I know it's been seven years since, or eight years almost now, since you started up Luminari, but given what you know about 
the market today and the experiences you've had, what type of advice would you uh, impart to somebody starting today? The, the most important thing is the following. If you don't have an edge, don't compete. However, if you do work tirelessly, focus on execution versus all the noise that's out there and maintain extreme conviction in what you are doing. You mentioned investing and you know having a contrarian focus at times. You've been right more than you've been wrong in the sense that the ones you've been on right on have been really, really right. But let's maybe look at your entire history and look at that investment miss that you might have had and what you learned from it. An investment miss meaning a company that you looked on that you passed on that at the time you thought was the right thing, but now in retrospect was a very, very wrong decision. I'm curious on what company that was and what you actually learned from it that now informs you. I'll give you two if that's okay. One of those was a complete miss. The other one was a miss for a while, but we became an investor in it over time. So I'll start, I'll start with that one first. So you mentioned Matterport early on and Lux Capital and, and, and DCM are very material investors in that that company and we're very close to those, those two firms, uh, we saw Matterport at, I believe, the seed round and the series A round. And each time we passed for a variety of reasons, um, we eventually became an investor. And in our first fund, it is a very substantive position in the fund. And as I've said several times in this call, I'll be wrong many times. And when we are wrong, and we have a future opportunity, if we're still convinced from that point in time, there's a probabilistic venture return to be had, we will vote with our checkbook. So in effect, we became sort of a mid-stage round investor in Matterport, and I incorrectly ha had passed on it in the earlier rounds. Thankfully, we think that'll be a good return at the end of the day. Um, one I completely missed on um, is a company called Twitch. And there are many lessons there, but one for me is don't extrapolate your own behavior to others when making investment decisions. Listen to the data. So my thought at the time was, you know, kids are watching other kids play video games. Kids are, uh, and that's premium content in effect, or kids are watching pre-recorded videos in effect. There, there's live streaming, of course, but they're also watching pre-recorded videos of other kids playing video games. And that was serving as premium content, which primarily were, were sort of young and or teen males, not, not that there aren't others on the platform or others weren't then, but that was a, that was a real miss. Um, and obviously it's gone on to be an incredible platform in terms of its engagement and monetization inside of um, Amazon. I love that lesson of, of not overweighting your own uh, potential use of something or your own view, whether you as a consumer would use it, but rather looking at the actual data to inform your decision on those types of investment decisions. So I think that's a great lesson. You know, the final question I have, and you know, everyone I've had on the show has had somebody in the investing world that's inspired them in some way and that they look up to. I'd be curious if you have an investor out there that you admire, and if so, who is that and what exactly about them makes you admiring them so much? I've been fortunate over my career to have become close with a multitude of, of investors and have had many great mentors. 
I'll mention a couple of folks very quickly uh, whom I admire the most and, and why. So I've used the word conviction a lot and being unconventional in terms of, of our investment approach. There's a public market investor by the name of Howard Marks, who's co-founder and co-chairman of, of an entity called Oak Tree Capital, which is the world's largest distressed securities in, in, investor. You know, he's got so many great quotes, um, but one for me that really stands out is to beat the market, you must hold an idiosyncratic or non-consensus view. And we apply that in our investing all the time. To bring it closer to the venture ecosystem, um, there are a couple of folks that have, have really made an impact on me over my career. Um, one is a former partner of mine at Globespan and a close friend um, named Venki Ganesan, who's one of the managing uh, directors at, at Menlo Ventures. He's smart, thoughtful, very high integrity. He's a great human being, and he's turned out to be uh, just a phenomenal investor over his career. And I've learned so much from him, not only from investing, but on the personal front too. Um, and then two other individuals very quickly, Josh Wolf and, and Peter Abair, who are the co-founders and, and co-managing partners of a firm called Lux Capital, which is now roughly in its, I think it's 20th year. Um, and they're sort of a 20-year overnight success. But Josh and Peter have both been close friends of mine since, I believe, 2000 or 2001, when they were first establishing their firm. I have tremendous respect for their partnership. The two of them complement each other very well. I have tremendous respect for how they have truly built a venture platform of significant size on every vector and have done it in a truly unconventional way and talk about conviction in what, what they were building and how lonely, quote unquote, their investment views and investment focus was over time. And then just sort of in the last, maybe it's the last five plus years, have seen the rest of the world really move in their direction in terms of the belief in, in what they're doing, the um, caliber of their asset selection, the size of the funds they've raised and the capital they have under management. I just have tremendous respect for what they've built. I agree. And those are some incredible names and, uh, you know, folks that, you know, I followed uh, closely. Peter uh, is also a good friend and very, very similar in, in many ways to what you've built of having conviction, knowing things are working before the rest of the world does. And it also highlights the fact that venture is a long-term game and it does take a long time you know, to build a truly successful and durable franchise, which you're well on the way to. And I, I've had a lot of fun on this uh, conversation, Daniel, always do. Wanted to thank you for all your support over the years and uh, appreciate you again being on the show. Samir, thank you very much. I've appreciated the opportunity to spend the time with you and to share a little bit about our firm. And I've appreciated our, our friendship over the years as well. And I'm certain it will, it will continue to grow. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Daniel and Waverly Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on this show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released. 